0: To turn to Revelation chapter 2. We'll get there in a few moments. At the beginning of each year, the President of the United States takes some time to communicate with the country in a, in a speech called The State of the Union, uh, where he tells about the condition of the country. Uh, That time can certainly be a time of politicizing uh, agendas. It can be a time of partisan divide, but it also can be a time to communicate uh, where we are, where the country is. It can be a time to communicate the challenges that are before us, and if there's any hope for the future. Uh, Well, this morning, as one of your pastors, I would like to take this time to share with you the state of the church as I see it and as what I see in the scriptures in this way, where we are, some of the challenges or the dangers that we face, and the hope that we have. Uh, First of all, where are we? Uh, Our cultural moment. Uh, The Church of Jesus Christ in the year of 2019 is facing several challenges. I think we all probably feel that. As our modern society progresses ever more secular, the church will, and already has, found itself out of step with popular culture and popular opinion. We see this in many issues of the day. Uh, it's more, though, than, than culture wars. It's more than personal standards of morality. The challenges are far deeper than that. Right? The challenges are actually... Uh, issues of the heart. They're they're fundamental. They're fundamental to the understanding of who God is and who that he says we are. Uh, The church stands at the brink of of a new world. As we have seen, even in the past decade or two, uh, the ideologies of people changing dramatically. So in our cultural moment, we face both challenges, challenges both from outside of the church and from within. Uh, challenges from outside of the church. Uh, we see pressures to conform. All right, we see the, uh, the moral revolution taking place. We'll talk about that in a moment. We see views on gender and sexuality changing. We see a secular world and a system of belief that is being pushed. We see the polarization of society We're seeing more and more the mentality of us against them. We see divisive politics where everything is partisan. Everything is left or right. Everything is blue or red. We see pluralism. That is the idea of of differing or diverse views of the world. Uh, Differing ideas of what is right and what is wrong. Differing ideas about God. Differing ideas about human life, about spirituality, all these thought, all of these ideas are thought to be equal. We see opposition for the Christian. We see hardship. We see even the possibility in the future of loss of religious liberty, even in our own country. Uh, When these challenges reach into the families of faith, we find confusion ensues. But we don't just face challenges outside the church. We face challenges from inside the church. Whether it's due to our own hearts or it's due to the nature of the situation that that churches are in. Speaking here, the, the nature of our transition, which causes some challenges for us as a church. We face challenges. Whether it's the priority of preference over unity Wanting what we want versus wanting what is best for the church. 1 Corinthians 14, we saw the the Corinthians dealing with this. We see the the challenge of judgment over charity, where we would much rather accuse than than walk in grace and love. Individuality over community. We live in a, a country, in a time where the individual is highly esteemed, Uh, Our Western ideas are are very different than some other places in the world uh, concerning community and the value of community. Uh, We see the tensions of our earthly national citizenship, which is temporal, with our heavenly eternal citizenship, don't we? Sometimes we have a hard time understanding how our citizenship of this country and our citizenship in heaven, how they How they coexist. How do, how do we function as a Christian in America? And when these challenges rise up in the, the families of faith, we see disunity reigning. The scriptures are not silent on these issues. And those are some of them, right? We probably could talk about other issues this morning. Uh, but today I would like to take some time and go to Revelation chapter 2. And in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we see Jesus has written seven letters. Letters. There are seven letters to seven different churches. In five of the seven letters, Jesus offers a rebuke to the church for their sin, for their failure, while only two churches do not receive any rebuke at all. Of the five who are rebuked, only three receive any sort of commendation for what they are actually doing well. Uh, This morning, we want to look at two of those churches that were both commended and also rebuked. We see them both in chapter 2 of Revelation. And as we look at these two letters, we're going to see two of the dangers that the church faces. They faced it then, and I think you will agree that they face it. We face it now. The first is in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 we find a church in Ephesus called the, the Loveless Church. We see a danger in the church of lovelessness. In verse 1, it reads like this. The angel of the church of Ephesus in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, that's Jesus, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Those are the churches. We see that in chapter 1, verse 20. It tells us what those, those pictures are, the stars and the, the, the lampstands. Then verse 2, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Then if you just look down a couple of verses, number 6, yet this, I ha- that- yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The first thing we see here is that the, the, they're commended for something. He leads with commendation. Jesus leads with what you're doing well. And what they were doing well is that they had discernment. Uh, they they could, could see what was right and what was wrong. They were working hard. Uh, they were patiently enduring. They were bearing evil. Um, they were, uh, excuse me, They were not bearing with evil. The only thing that we bear with is, is, is the weak brother, not the false brother. Uh, they were testing the apostles. They were seeing what was true and what was what was false. In verse six, they, they hated the works of the Nicolaitans. I won't spend a lot of time here on that. But the Nicolaitans is thought that possibly there's, this isn't consensus here, but one commentator understands that uh, the, these Nicolaitans may have been um, those who formed uh, an, a. a an idea called antinomianism, which basically means no moral law. That the moral law of the Old Testament did not, um, uh, did not uh, matter. We were not held to it. So you could engage. It was a license to sin. That's what antinomianism means. That, they, that it's all grace and you can, you can go ahead and take part. It was a Gnostic cult which taught that one must indulge in sin in order to understand it. They gave themselves over to sensuality with the explanation that such sins did not touch their spirits. So it may very well be this cult that Jesus is referring to, that they hated these these people. They hated this this idea, these these teachings. So we see that they had discernment. Uh, They had right thinking. But verse 4 tells us the rebuke. Look at it with me. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. The rebuke is that they had left their first love. Who was their first love? Jesus, right? Jesus is writing. He's saying, you've you've left left me. Whereas the, the Ephesians had discernment, which is good, they did not, or they lacked love. Do you know that you can do the right things with the wrong heart before the Lord, and it is worthless. Do you know that you can come to church, you can read your Bible, you can act the part, and yet it's all meaningless because there is no love. It's what the prophet said in Isaiah: "There, they, they honor me with their lips, yet their heart is far from me." You know, there are those that, that on the last day, Matthew 7 says, they're going to say to the Lord, did we not do this, that, and the other thing? And Jesus is going to say, depart from me for I never knew you. Why? Because their heart wasn't right. There was no love. First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2 says that if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. He goes on to say, even if I give my life my body to be burned, and I have not love, it doesn't matter. There's a high value on love. Warren Wearsby says, labor is no substitute for love. Doing the right thing doesn't change not having the right heart. Warren Wearsby again, busy working for the Lord, but no sincere love for him. Programs without Passion. This is the busy church with the great statistics, but one drifting away from heartfelt devotion to Christ. This was the church in Ephesus. This was the rebuke. You might know right things, but you don't love. This rebuke, though, was not without a solution. Jesus didn't just rebuke them and say, you did good, you did bad. That's, that's the end of the story. He actually goes on in verse 5. and says, says, here's the solution. The solution is to remember from where you've fallen, to repent, and to do the works that you did at first. So remember what it was, repent of what you're doing, and return. There, there's the solution. For, for the one who is who's loveless, the one who is, might have all the right thoughts but isn't living rightly, remember, repent, and return. And if not, the rest of verse five says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He's saying, I'm gonna take this church away. I'm gonna take the spirit of God out of this church. This church will no longer be a church. It will cease to be a place where God dwells. It will cease to be a place of the, the gathering of God's people. This is no small thing to have the lampstand removed. We ought to take notice, take heed of this warning of Jesus to the church of Ephesus is a warning to you and to me. A warning that we might think the right things, but if it's not in love, it is meaningless. He goes on in verse 7 to tell them a future reward for those who have ears To hear in uh, in their book, uh, Creative Minority, the the writers give a term, doctrinalism. I've I've used this before, but uh, it's helpful here. Doctrinalism is when right doctrine is carefully emphasized, while right living is utterly neglected. So, right thinking is emphasized; right living is neglected. That's what they call doctrinalism. You, you have a high value on thinking, but a low value on living. The priority is, is knowing right, but not on doing what is right. Not on loving. This seems to describe the church in Ephesus. And God's word is pretty clear about this, isn't it? About not being just a hearer of the word, but a doer. Not just to hear the voice of the shepherd we saw last week, but to actually do, to follow 1 John talks about the way that we show that we love God is by actually loving other people. Loving others is a demonstration of our love for God. Or as Brenning Manning says it this way, the litmus test of our love for God is our love for neighbor, love of neighbor. One of the reasons that lovelessness is such a problem is that lovelessness in the church leads to hypocrisy. It's people who have the right answers but don't have the the life to, to back it up. They say the right things, but they don't live the right way. And brother and sister, we are not immune. This is a danger that we face. I think that we could rightly say that any church that has a, a clear emphasis on teaching can run the risk of unintentionally under-emphasizing the right outcome of teaching, which is always right living. The right outcome of teaching is always right living, We're not teaching the Bible just to fill your head for for the next time you have some trivia on the Bible. It's not so you sound good. It's not so you know the answers to the next test. That's not the point. The point is for how that word changes the way we live. What the word of God has to say to us about our our very life. The scriptures are given for us to know God and to love God. Not one or the other. It's both and. It's to know God and to love God. Because in the Bible, we actually find this. In the Bible, we find out that we can know him. And we find that we are called to love him. But we find that the only reason that we love him is because he loved us first. But we wouldn't know that unless we know the scriptures. So how would you know to love God? Because he loved you first. We can become this lifeless, loveless church when we are known for more for, for um, what we are not about or what we are against than what we are for. We can become lo- the loveless church when we are known more um, than we are known for what we do more than who we love. We become this loveless church when we are more about the what than the how. Listen to Colossians chapter three. Put on then God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. First danger that we see is the danger of lovelessness. The second danger we find is the danger of corruption. If you come all the way down in chapter 2, to verse eighteen, we see another letter written to a church in a city called Thyatira. And he starts out with an introduction, as he does verse eighteen, and then verse nineteen he gets to the what he can commend about them. And he says this: "I know your works, your love, in faith, in service, in patient endurance, that your latter works exceed the firsts." Here's what we find out about this church. They have love down. They're they're a loving church. They're they're pretty active on on the loving end of the spectrum. They're they're doing stuff. Their latter works were more than their first. They're growing. They're increasing. This church was known for, uh, for their growth in love, which was evidenced by their deeds, their deeds of service. They're actually doing something. Their love wasn't just, I'm saying that, I'm loving. They're actually doing something about their love. They're showing their love. So they're doing stuff. They're loving. They're serving. But there is a problem. The problem comes in verse 20. We see this. But this I have against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Here we find that that this church lacked discernment. They had love down but they lack discernment. See what's happening here? This is the exact opposite of the the church in Ephesus. One, One theologian says it this way, Thyatira was just the reverse of Ephesus. There was much zeal for orthodoxy, that means the right thing, but little love. Here in Thyatira, the activity of faith and love was present, but insufficient zeal for godly discipline and doctrine. And a patient error, patience of error, even where there was no participation in it, now not all these people were participating with jezebel right? that 's what his point is, but what he is saying is that they were tolerating her, they were tolerating that the false teaching. There's much we could say about this, this, this idea of Jezebel. Some think certain things about, about whether or not this was actually a person named Jezebel, who was a prophetess, or it was a symbol of the lady in the Old Testament, Jezebel herself, who was, uh, was a, a false worshiper of, of false gods such as Baal. Regardless, whether it was a, a real person or symbolic of this lady, the point is that, that, that this church was tolerating Uh, The influence of this woman and her teachings, and we're corrupting the church. And Jesus accuses the church of lacking discernment. When we lack discernment, we give rise to the tolerance of heresy. Heresy is the opposite of God's word, heresy is unorthodox, heresy is a deviation from the truth. The church was tolerating heretical teaching. This teaching that was leading or seducing people into sinful living. This word seducing, it doesn't mean just a mere error. It means a fundamental departure from the truth. There was intentionality behind it. It was trying to get people to do the wrong thing. And this church was not standing up against it. They, they, weren't, uh, they weren't calling it out. They were lacking discernment uh, about it. They had love. But they didn't have discernment. The rebuke here is, again, not without consequence or exhortations and promise. The consequence comes in verses 21 through 23. We find out that because Jezebel wouldn't repent, there was judgment coming. And God wasn't turning his head on this. The judgment was coming to specifically to Jezebel, but also you can see in verse 22, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead. Find there's judgment coming for, for, this, for this teaching, for believing these things, for participating in these things. He talks about sickness. He talks about great tribulation. He talks about children dying. And I think it's worthy of us just to take a pause here and just say this. You do not sin in isolation. Your sin affects more people than you know. As you read your Bible, you find out that the sins of other people affect other people. The sin of David affected other people. The sin of Achan affected other people. Even Jonah's sin affected other people. Thankfully, no one died on that ship. But those sailors could have died. That boat was about to go down. Our sin affects other people. You do not sin in isolation. The judgment came because there was a refusal to hear God's solution. God's solution was repentance. Repentance is not a get-out-of-jail-free card, by the way. Uh, Sometimes, maybe when we're younger and we're kids, we we want to get it behind us, right? So we make the apology. We say the right words so that it's behind us, so we we get it over with. Uh, Repentance isn't just getting it over with. Repentance is actually agreeing with God that this is wrong, and there is a turning or forsaking of said sin. Repentance is actually observable. Repentance is not just something that we say, it's something that we do. And clearly, Jezebel and the people who were participating with her did not repent, did not turn from their sin. It's a warning to you and to I of the consequences of our sin. Verse 24 and 25, he gives exhortations. And one of those we see in verse 25, hold fast what you have till I come. There were those who did not follow Jezebel. They were not with her. They were not doing what she was doing. And to that, Jesus says, hold fast. Hold fast to the truth till I come. Be faithful. And the promise is the promised reward. We could read those words in verses 26 through 29. Do we see this danger today? Do you see this danger of, of love, having love but not having discernment? Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. We see a great push today to love, which there's nothing wrong with love, right? But we see this idea of of loving all things, uh, loving all choices, loving all lifestyles, loving all belief systems, accepting all of those things as though they are all equal. That's not love. There is what some have called, we use the term already, a moral revolution happening in our culture. A British theologian named Theo Hobson has observed three things that must happen for a complete moral revolution to occur. And here are the three phases of a cultural revolution. First is, Something that was nearly universally condemned is now nearly universally celebrated. Something which was celebrated is condemned. Those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. That sound like anything to you? Christian, you paying attention? This is is what's happening. This is the state. This is the state of the church. And it's not just out there. Here's the myth, brothers, sisters. It's just out there. It's us against them. It's the world against the church. Not so. This This same thinking is here. It is in the church. There are Christians who think, this way. This idea of acceptance. This this idea that that all things are equal. Plurality, pluralism is real. It is real. It is a real system of belief. It's a real thing that's happening. It's always been, but we see it more and more. This is the state of the church. This is the, the fruit of the absence of discernment. Where we we say we want to love everything, but we have no discernment of what is right and wrong. So if you understand that the church in Thyatira, they could sound very similar to the church of 2019 in America. Saying, oh, but we want to love them. Yet Jezebel's not, we don't agree maybe with everything, but we want to love her. What's that going to do for her? If she never knows what's right and wrong. Of course we love Listen, this is, we're not saying it's discernment or love, right? We're not saying it's either or. Jesus has commended them for their love and rebuked them for the lack of discernment. On the other hand, he commended them for their discernment and rebuked them for their love. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying both are important. We're not going to be a church that's just about one. We're not going to be about the church that says we love everybody, with no discernment. We're also not going to be the discernment police without any love. Both are necessary. These are the dangers that we face. Lack of discernment leads to corruption. It leads to unfaithfulness. Where is our hope for today? Let me um, get there in a second. Let me first say this about the churches of Ephesus and Thyatira. You know where the churches of Ephesus and Thyatira are now? They don't exist. The lampstand has been removed. So that was a long time ago, right? Of course they don't. No, no, no. Why would would they no longer exist? Because their unfaithfulness The church in, in, in Cairo, the church in the United States, the same thing could be said of us, written of us in years to come. If we don't have love and discernment. This is a sobering warning. So here again, Jesus' exhortations. His solutions for them are these. Remember, repent, and return. Remember where your first love was. Remember the Jesus who died for you, who loves you, and he gave himself for you. Repent of of your sin of leaving him, of straying and return, forsaking those sins and coming back to the one who loves you. For us who are yet to, to fall, who haven't left yet, the call is to hold on. Be faithful. Hold the line. Believe. Ask God for faith to believe. You can't do it on your own. This isn't a a pull yourself up by your bootstraps. This isn't be tough. It's saying God has has given you grace to believe. Ask him for more. And thirdly, at the end of each of these letters, Jesus Jesus says these words, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen. Listen to him. Listen to the word of God. Will you have ears to hear it this morning? We have ears to hear that, that, that love ought to define us, but not love alone? That discernment ought to define us, but not discernment alone? If you look at your life and you, you see only one of those two things happening in your life, then, then, then you're missing something. Hear it again. It's love and discernment discernment. We need to know this, that we are Christ's church. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 tells us this, Jesus saying, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here's the good news for us today. This is Christ's church. It's not my church. It's not your church. We sometimes talk about it like that because we we love it and we want to feel part of it. But the truth is that it's not. We're part of Jesus's church. And by grace, he will continue to build the church here in Cairo. You also see what Jesus' end game is in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 25. Hear these words. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? Verse 26. That he might sanctify her make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what he's doing in you. Like the mission of God is not just out there. It's here. It's in our heart. It's making us new. It's making us more and more like Jesus. That's his end game. How do we avoid these dangers? We commit to these two things. We commit to teach the Bible. It is my commitment as a pastor to teach the Bible, to teach the God of the Bible, to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we seek to know him, we must seek to know his word. And secondly, we commit to live the Bible. We're committed to follow what he has said. Listen, left to ourselves, we go inward. Left to ourselves, we, we are all about, all about me If you know yourself even a little bit, you know that's true. Left to yourself, you want what you want. But as we see the Bible, as we know the Bible, as we gain discernment through the Bible, we understand what kind of life we ought to be living. One of outward facing love and service. Closing, hear the words of John chapter one. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory as of the Son from the Father, listen, full of grace and truth. Verse 16. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. Love And faithfulness. Grace and truth came through Christ. We are Christ's. We are the church of Christ. So, grace and truth are what we are to demonstrate to the world that they might see Jesus. This is made possible through Jesus. So, we can. By grace, we can. The dangers are real, the solution is clear, and the hope is available. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? Would you help us to see more clearly the dangers that lie in front of us? Many of us are prone to, to one end of this or the other. Some of us are, are convinced that, that we need to, to love more. And yet we don't have the discernment to know how to love. On the other, there's those who, who just want to bang the pulpit of truth without any sense of grace. Father, guard us from those extremes or those singular ideas would help us to see how these two things are together. In Christ, we see both grace and truth. That's how it has come. So therefore, by grace, we can live that way too. That in all things, Jesus would receive the glory. In whose name we pray, amen.